Hello, Rejects, and welcome back to Rejected Central. We have a very special episode for you today. We're talking about Palestine and Israel. On October 7th, the militant group Hamas stormed into Israel and slaughtered more than 1,200 people. In response, the state of Israel blockaded, bombarded, and has subsequently invaded Gaza with the stated goal of eradicating Hamas. It's a polarizing issue, understandably, and passions are high. A few weeks ago, at the annual Scotiabank Giller Prize ceremony, which for those who don't know is Canada's biggest literary award, protesters stormed the stage to send the message that Scotiabank's arms investments were being used to oppress the Palestinian people. The protesters were arrested and charged, and the response has been predictably divided. More than 1,700 authors have signed an open letter calling for the charges against the protesters to be dropped. Gary Barwin, our guest today, also signed the letter. And although Gary is Jewish and one might expect him to take the side of Israel, he's still signed. But he's here today because of a Facebook post he made after signing, where he went even further to explain why. Where he rejected the idea that our passions or our allegiances should keep us from talking openly about injustice. In fact, we should do the opposite, even if it means using and defining the most difficult language, including genocide. Gary Barwin is an author, musician, and all-around Renaissance artist. He's won awards for his amazing writing all over the place, and has even gotten a nod for the Giller, which we talked about a little bit in our introduction. His writing continually pushes the boundaries of Canadian and Jewish literature, and I'm just so pleased to have him here. Gary, welcome, and thanks for dropping by. Oh, thanks for having me. Today we're going to talk about something a a little bit more serious than we normally do on Rejected Central, and I appreciate you being here. Um, As I mentioned in the introduction, you did something that went above the normal responses, and when I say normal, I say normal in air quotes, to what we've seen about the occupation, the invasion the massacre that we've seen in Israel and Palestine. It goes beyond what we've seen there, I think. Um, But before we get into that, can you tell me just a little bit about yours and your family's background and and why this is so relevant to you and essential to who you are? Yeah, it... I guess it's become these issues have become increasingly relevant in my thinking. My um, family background is that my grandparents, all of my grandparents... Uh, came from Lithuania um, and moved from Lithuania before the Holocaust. But I would say basically the rest of their family and the rest of their world was destroyed in the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, my mother's father, for instance, had, an, had four um, brothers and sisters and they were all killed and his parents and all. Of, so then they moved to South Africa and my parents grew up in South Africa and moved from South Africa uh, when they became adults because of apartheid, we then moved to Northern Ireland. They moved to Northern Ireland where I was born and we moved from there because of the troubles and then we moved to Canada. So part of my understanding of myself and something I've been thinking about the last 10 or so years particularly is here I am in Hamilton, Ontario speaking English. How did I get here? Why mm. Why am I here? And what, what, is my, what is my positionality in the world and how has history affected my relationship as a person from a Jewish Ashkenazi background um, and also from all those places all the kind of particular particularities of history how you know those are all things that came from um, that resulted from um, political and religious or um, po- various kind of powers 
issues and, um, and persecution of various peoples. And so that's really been something I've thought about. And my last two books, my last two novels, I should say, Yiddish for Pirates and Nothing the Same, Everything Haunted, have both been about, specifically been about Jewish persecution. Uh, Yiddish for Pirates deals with um, uh, the Inquisition, and then it also maps the Inquisition or it, it thinks about Jewish persecution in relation to indigenous persecution when Columbus came to mm-hmm. uh, um, North America. And um, Nothing the Same, Everything Haunted specifically addresses um, the Holocaust in Lithuania and then, th- and then explicitly makes a connection to North, to North American genocide. Hitler explicitly borrowed some of the, of the, pl- um, some of the, the strategies that uh, were used uh, to, um, used in the genocide against North American people for, for his genocide. So I've more and more thought of my, um, one of the things that I do as a writer is thinking about history, thinking about my my moral and ethical responsibility. I'm going to spend three years on a novel, what is important to speak about, not to preach, but to examine, to, to explore, to um, unpack some of the issues and make meaningful connections. Um, it's not really something I ever thought about till I really started considering my positionality. And so um, you asked about why is this relevant to me now? Yeah. So yeah. I would say for two reasons. As a Jew, um, Israel has become relevant. It be- it's an issue to consider. What what does that mean? What does Zionism mean? What does the historical persecution and current persecution of, or current anti-Semitism mean um, for Jews? Um, and then, how does that relate to Israel? And what what is the what is our response? What what should we do? How do we engage that? And for me, how does that also then how does the Holocaust, uh, the lessons of the Holocaust, whatever they are, how does that mean I should think about the world? And what does that what is my responsibility to other people, to other genocides? There's been a lot of genocide scholarship since the Holocaust, mm-hmm. understanding. Mm-hmm. Like, what are the features of a genocide? I mean, unfortunately, there's been a few genocides since the Holocaust. Yeah, like, what are yeah. the features of a genocide? What Like, there are people who study this, and there are certain recurrent patterns that we can anticipate the direction towards a genocide and what characteristics of genocide. And that. And so to me, I take that, my responsibility as a um, Jewish person and I get, and as someone who has descended from people whose families were... were um, subject to a Holocaust, uh, then what, how, how do I take that understanding? The Jewish phrase, never again, to me, applies to everybody in the world, not just mm. to mm. Jews. So I felt that I, if I was going to engage in these issues as a writer, I should speak about um, this issue. And I was pl- placed in a, as a Jew and as somebody who's considered genocides, I was placed to speak to it. And I had an ethical imperative to do so. Yeah, and you do so with humor often. You have a very humorous way of writing and engaging with those issues. Actually, one of the reasons that your Facebook post that we're going to talk about in a little bit stood out to me was because it was very straight. It was very serious because you're you're generally somebody who can find humor in a lot of things. It is one of the things that I enjoy about working with you on the Lit Live Committee, about reading your writing, about seeing you engaged with the media, but this was very, very serious. How important is humor to your exploration of those issues? Um, that's a good question. I mean, I, I in my writing, it's definitely a technique. I mean, it, one thing is to to continue to humanize. A hum, humor brings the audience in, so you're listening, you're gathering, and then even if you then 
have a it, it's humorous and then there's a twist where it suddenly becomes serious that sets the reader up in a certain in a certain way um and there's a kind of dark ironic absurdity to living mm. that humor reflects and it also helps you get through the these difficult stories yeah. and so you can change um register you could you can be constantly changing register uh, through um using humor and then switching to not things that are not humorous or um, and it's interesting how humor can make um dark things lighter yeah but it can also make light things even darker by those things you're talking about the juxtaposition the irony the paradox of laughing in a moment or in a situation where it's not laughable there's a certain kind of you know the the Beckett I, I can't go on I uh, I'll go on. That kind of right. I mean, that, oh, do go on. Yes, yes. So there's that. There is that kind of line where where that that is a kind of the inherent absurdity or the inherent um, uh, being able to have this um, two ways of thinking at the same time. Um, the, my favorite Holocaust joke, which is a genre. Who knew? Uh, there's 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 this one where this guy dies, goes up to heaven, um, sees God, tells God, like. Hey, I have this great Holocaust joke, and tells him the joke, and God says, "I, I get everything, but I don't get this." And he goes, "Well, God, God, you had to be there," oh. and it's like, Phew. yeah, because it, it is, it's. I mean, it's a. First of all, you listen. You're telling a story. There's some kind of a celebration of the human of of storytelling, of of sharing an experience, of being take, taken along, of relating to the story, and then the the twist at the end, which is like, right, this is this thing. How can this horror happen? I mean, this is grim humor, but it's like, okay, well, what happened at at the moment of the Holocaust? Like, th- it's actually addressing a serious yeah. philosophical thing. Yeah. But it does has all that stuff that happens where you where you are connected to the story and it and it in a way rather than just saying well why wasn't God there at the Holocaust is that like was what or or was there a God or what does that mean like all of that doesn't you know that that's a different thing it doesn't use storytelling it doesn't it doesn't bring you in it doesn't that kind of absurdity irony complexity of what it is to be feeling those feelings because I think people often we end up feeling one thing at once and I think. Um, I think that we feel, me- or we think we feel one thing at once when we're really feeling many things at once. Mm. And and the way we frame things is, no, 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 you feel sad or you feel happy. Or actually, humans feel a whole cluster of feelings at once. And I think humor really does a good job of unpacking that so that things are not just one thing or the other polarity. I think, yeah, I think that's a really good spot to mention the Facebook post that you made after mm-hmm. the, the letter calling for the charges to be dropped against the protesters and expressing solidarity for nonviolent, peaceful protest. Um, because it does that very thing. It looks at that one issue, but says it's not that one issue. Why did you think it was so important for people to consider both sides of this issue in that post that you made? Because you signed the letter. I did. But you also talked about genocide and you talked about, well, we are in this historical moment. You didn't just sign the letter and say one thing. You actually talked about it from a very, I would call it an uncomfortably balanced position. Yes. Or what I would say was a position that acknowledged the feelings and the experiences of people on, of Jewish people and Zionists, Mm -hmm. as well as, um, non-Zionists or Palestinian people and people um, who question Israel, because I think what happened, because I would say, I'm not, I don't want to balance it like, oh yeah, genocide, it's okay. And sometimes, like I wanted to be clear that I thought it was genocide. You can't say that the idea that when you make a quote unquote balanced position, 
that the balance reflects that both sides have an equal say or have an equally good perspective on something that can be found. No, that's not that at all, is it? Right. No, that's a good point about um, that they have an equally valid perspective. It doesn't mean that both sides, I don't want to consider how both sides are feeling mm-hmm. and understand um, their perspectives, but then make the point that I want to make. Yeah. Um, I signed that letter. Um, I knew by signing it as a Jewish writer, like such... Um, platform as I have as a writer has been through um, Jewish work. Both of my novels, which are by far the most um, um, uh, mainstream thing that I've done that's got have, that's had more attention, have been for Jewish novels. And so I have a platform as a Jewish writer. And so I felt that by signing that letter, I mean, I knew that I would be getting um, blowback from it. And I knew that there was um, there's a kind of a risk in terms of speaking out um, in in support and an acknowledgement of of Palestine or uh, and against Israeli genocide or even calling it a genocide, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, all of that can't, would come at some both personal risk. Um, by risk, I mean I, I don't mean like real risk. I mean I, I mean like social risk and sure. ha- being policed by well by family, which mm-hmm. happened, and mm-hmm. by um, people in the Jewish community, which happened, and by Jewish literary organizations. So I knew that that was part of, there would be a rejection to, to uh, like there would be a, pu- a pushback against it because yeah. I was stepping out of the um, official position, which is that you, there's an, 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 a kind of a feeling within Jewish spaces that, with well, many Jewish spaces, that you need to support Israel no matter what. Right. And, you, and also, for that matter, that you ought to be Zionist, for that matter. Right. Um, and it's actually a lot more complicated than that, and yes. not everybody feels that, but that's, it's sort of, everybody has to be in line. And so I knew that um, by stepping out of it, that I would, there becomes some, with some consequences. I would also say that um, some Jewish writers contacted me and said, well, thank you for doing that. Now I feel empowered that I can do it too. Mm-hmm. Um so I wrote a letter in response because I knew that I'd have the blowback. And in fact, it was a direct response to somebody who, um, a writer who had contacted me like, why did you sign that oh, letter? Oh, that's interesting. Okay. Uh, and then I, okay. I wrote back to him and I realized, oh, you know, I should do this publicly because I want to, um, um, I want to be really clear about what I think. But I also want to do the thing from my perspective as a Jewish writer, understanding how Jewish people feel. And so this is, this is how, how I think that Jewish people are feeling. Um, and and and, a, and an important distinction to make. So a lot of Jewish people, they're feeling essentially the the trauma from the Holocaust. They feel a, a deep existential threat. Like this is this will be genocide against uh, like all of the situation. Israel is a bulwark against um, against genocide, and that things that the Palestinians do for self determination are. Um, throwing that safety into question and particularly so, October 6th. Well, okay, right? so that like, was yeah, like then then there was extreme. actually mm-hmm. like yeah, they I mean numbers like the most Jews killed since the Holocaust. Right. And I mean, absolutely 100% it was a it was a it was a tragedy, it was awful. There's no way to minimize the loss of Well, and the language lives. that Hamas uses is the same thing that you were just talking about as well. It's existential language too. Well, they, I mean, and there's, there's some stuff that's up to debate, but they used to have in their charter that they that the eradication of the state of Israel. Yeah. And then when people talk about an apartheid state and end the occupation, um, Jewish people read that as an existential threat. Hmm. And and similarly, um, a lot of Jewish people read. I mean, there have been some very disturbing um, anti-Semitic acts. There's like um, swastikas put on. Uh, uh, 
on, on synagogues and and there was there was some shots fired into a um, a Jewish school and nobody was nobody was killed there were there was not actually f- um, any physical consequences I know there was a tree of life um, killing a, um, a number of years ago in Philadelphia but mm. generally it's really really scary and it's really really trauma it, it really um, triggering of the trauma that people either directly experienced or that is historically um, they're saturated in the sense of that. But it's not actually happening. And even when, even if you understand what the Palestine, uh, the Palestinian um, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, mm-hmm. which many Jews read as they mean erasing the state of Israel. And yeah. some people do want that. Um, it doesn't. It doesn't necessarily. It doesn't necessarily mean that. But people take that as um, a call to genocidal action. I would also make the distinction that scary as that might be for some people. It's not actually happening. I would, of course, if anything was actually happening, anything to to actually destroy Israel, like if people were actually dying, I mean, beyond the people who died during October 7th, of course I would be decrying that. I mean, I, I would be decrying any kind of genocidal or action like that from anybody. Mm-hmm. So I felt that I... I felt that I wanted to speak to the trauma of of, um, of Jewish people, understanding all of that background that I just said. That these things, they feel like your very life is threatened. That you're that that it, that um, just as happened to many people's grandparents, this will happen. To, this is about to happen to them, and there's this rise and things like I saw a thing this morning. I was looking at uh, some red paint put on a, on indigo. Uh, and a bunch of posters put up against Heather Reisman saying because she oh, okay. she funds a scholarship heard. for um, for people to join the Israeli army. Okay, and so they were saying that she was funding genocide, and so people were saying, "Well, that's Kristallnacht," and like, okay, that's disturbing, um, and we can debate whether or not that's appropriate civil disobedience or civil action, uh, like to put spray paint on a building and, and a, you know and all of that. But it isn't Kristallnacht. It's it's not the beginning of a Holocaust. It may be disturbing, but it's not that. And accusing her of funding genocide is also not Kristallnacht. Though it is, of course, it's really disturbing. And of course, I understand how traumatizing that is. And so for me, though, I see that's different than what Israel is actually doing. Yeah, we we tend to see most things, you know, in the conflagration that is the media these days. You see that polarized perspective. So you're talking about... The Israeli and the Jewish perspective of saying it is an ex- existential threat, and often the discussion stays there. It, can, it feels like an existential it threat. Does. I don't it think does. it actually Absolutely. is. Yeah, you recognize it, but you're saying we need to actually look at that, recognize its validity, and then also look at the other side too, and yeah. to say, well, if we're going to talk about genocide, then we need to find a way to talk about it the existential threat or both sides of that issue as and well. I would say actually, even if you felt that. It was a clear and present danger of genocide, and I would say, I mean, Israel has a very, is a state with a very sophisticated military funded billions of dollars from the West, the United States, for example. So it it is able to defend itself well, certainly against the Palestinians, um, despite October 7th. Sorry, did I say October? It's October 7th. My apologies. And again, I'm not, I of course, I don't minimize the individuals, but relatively speaking, it's a, in terms of if we're talking genocide, it's actually it's actually relatively small. That doesn't mean the individual tragedies aren't, of course, they're of course. huge. But even if it was a, a, a genocidal threat, it doesn't, to me, it, a threat of genocide, it doesn't justify then you going back and, and committing genocide. It's like right. if I threatened I was going to kill you, you can't just shoot. You can't. You just can't shoot me in the head, saying, "Look, he saw, he told me he, he was going to shoot me," 
So I was, I felt a threat. If I came at you with a gun, then okay, that's a different, like right mm-hmm. there. And so that becomes the difference. It's like, okay, what is the level of- How what, to measure that response. How to measure that. Yeah. And, and I, of course, I understand if you came out with, if you threatened to kill me, I'd be scared. I would be disturbed. I'd be, you know, traumatized yeah. if I really believed it would happen. But it's different for you saying that from the river to the sea and actually being able to enact that in a, in a real way, I think. So what I, my read of what is happening and from all the information I'm able to get is that what is happening in Palestine is a genocide and the things that have been happening even before October 7th uh, have been genocidal, have been, you know, those are the kinds of leading up to um, genocide that the, the genocide scholars say that they are, um, um, you know, by by with, withholding basic human rights, withholding basic access to this, the things that you need to, to live, uh, water, electricity, work, uh, freedom of movement, all mm-hmm, of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, but particularly now that the military is in 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 Gaza and is is firing and i would say in the west bank where where settlers are removing um palestinians from their land these this kind of ethnic cleansing clearing is um all of that now i say this knowing that jewish people will even just call it a genocide is somehow a being disloyal and b inaccurate according to many jewish people right um, and i wanted one thing i wanted to say which i did a lot of research about um, the Holocaust and about the nature of genocide for writing my, for Nothing the Same, Everything Haunted, my last book, talking about the Holocaust. And um, there's a discussion in, in Holocaust studies about um, traditionally the Holocaust was considered the paradigmatic genocide. Mm. And certainly many Jewish people feel that. Like this, this is what it looks like. And everything else, and it's almost like a competition to be the most like the most Holocaust, sure. and it's like, and it's like, oh, the most genocide, and it's like, okay, wait, that doesn't make any sense. Like you can't say, well, that was six million, and this was only five, so six million wins. Like it's not a competition. That's like a bizarrely immoral, you know, ridiculous thing. And so, rather than thinking of it as a continuum where the Holocaust is on one side and all of the others are lined up on the half, uh, lined up low, low in, you know, as as lower amounts of of genocide, you know, as if you can kind of rate, give it a like a Holocaust value. It's, you know, my my son made a joke was a joke. See, that's a Holocaust and a half. Like he was like making fun, <laughs> like uh, that. Oof. It's it's so absurd because yeah. that's kind of what people do, which is like, oh, that's only half a Holocaust. That's that's a ridiculous and inane ultimately way of doing it. So rather than thinking of it as on a two dimensional continuum, the idea that genocide, you think of it. Um, each different genocide has, a, even though they have many features in common, they have different features. So thinking of it on a, you know, in a three-dimensional grid or a, so that you can actually, if you're trying to make some sort of taxonomy or some sort of like um, organization, each different genocide, and sadly we've had many, yeah. have different features, but they may have many of the, ultimately the same features, yeah. not just loss of life, but some of the other things about suppression of language, suppression of culture, yeah. displacement. I mean, all of those things. That makes a lot of sense to me, measuring one genocide against other genocides, not quantitatively only, acknowledging the quantities, of course, but qualitatively and saying it is unique to that particular people, to that particular situation, and it doesn't have to be measured directly against X genocide on this particular scale of numbers. Right, and or numbers or even um, procedure, like because sure. okay, the, the Holocaust had some specific features, the kind of... Um, 
organization mm. and 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 um, you know the specific things and and concentration camps and trains and and it was a very particular to that situation, say as opposed to Rwanda or you know or Croatia, uh, which I you know I did some research right, for right. I mean, yeah. and so each one because of sp- the specifics of the people and the place. Um, and also the other important point is that to recognize a genocide some, somewhere, one place, does not disrespect the others. It's not like this. Um, I mean, sadly, we have to have place for all um, awful things that happen to humans and that humans perpetrate. And I, th- I feel that it makes us like to recognize that and to be able to see commonality makes us larger and more humane as people, not less. So just to say the, there are these other genocides or like in this case, the Palestinian people are suffering the, the uh, genocide doesn't take away from the what has happened to Jews or their feeling of um, of trauma or of threat. Like I I understand that. I, I mean I really do understand that. And I I hope uh, to me it's like it sh- it could be an opportunity for empathy. Like we understand what it's like. We we Jews understand that. It's and it's also one of the things that makes me particularly horrified when I hear some of Netanyahu's government saying things like human animals, that they typified Palestinian civilians, which particularly, well, it all galls me, but particularly that they're using... Genocidal language. Genocidal and explicitly Nazi language. Wow. It's like, okay, wait, do you... like? Because to me, my responsibility as a Jew is to, I mean, given the historical persecution, the Holocaust and before, is to me to take that understanding, not only to understand with Jews about Jews, but other people and to be able to like, presumably I, if I've developed some insight from my background, I can apply that for, to other people, you know, the never again. And I like, so it particularly galls me that, that, um, that the connection isn't being made. I thought a lot about that with Jews who moved to South Africa. It's like, wait a second, you, uh, many Jews who got, well, pretty much all of the Jews who went to South Africa came from Europe and many of them escaped directly from, um, the rise in anti-Semitism um, in in Eastern Europe. Uh, my grandparents certainly, mm-hmm. um, and so the idea that they could not then see commonality with um, African people, that with the, you know the blacks in in South Africa, that they couldn't see that. Wait a second, we're oppressing them. The structure of apartheid is like you have a special responsibility due to your history. I mean, everybody does as a human, but I presume that you should have a particular understanding based on your recent history. So I guess I feel that particularly with Jews and Palestine. And so I wanted to, I wanted to speak to my understanding of the trauma and not just say, if I just said like, yeah, free Palestine, Jews would not, maybe Jewish people reading it wouldn't understand and would just feel traumatized. So I Mm. wanted to speak Mm. to Jewish people reading to to acknowledge the trauma, to acknowledge um, their feelings and my understanding of our feelings but also to acknowledge this terrible thing happening. And I, what I did in the post was I found the UN definition of genocide and I was saying this is why I felt that what was happening in Palestine uh, meets um, that standard is to call it a genocide. Yeah. Because for Jews, calling it a genocide, many, I've read articles where it says calling it a genocide is anti-Semitic. That kind of language, again, can't possibly fail to alienate because it doesn't allow the nuance of what that could mean, right? Like in terms of what's getting said. To me, it really just, it really, it really, what you did in that Facebook post, you were really trying to point back to language that can be so polarizing, that can be so extreme and can cause such a reaction to say, 
we need to pause and look at how that language can be used for the extreme response. It can be used for also a moment of pause and to think about what's happening with that language in mind. It shouldn't, it shouldn't be unthinkable to use a word like genocide or apartheid or whatever that language, that loaded language historically would be. We should be able to apply it thoughtfully. Yeah, and I think you're exactly right that what happens is it, the, the, the good use of it is that it, it says this, we understand what happened historically, this is sort of, this is the same thing. So this highly charged language, apartheid, this, like, we know how terrible that was. Well, this is happening. It's the same level of terrible. But what happens, unfortunately, is for many people, it, it's just triggering and then they just, like, they just see red and they, they're not able, it's like, Israel, apartheid, and then they don't, then the conversation stops. I would say, we're talking about blowback, my an old family friend was supposed to come to my parents for dinner, like, the night after I posted that, and she said, no, she wouldn't come, she was too upset wow. that I said these things. And... Because not because she's not intelligent and thoughtful, but because she just had a complete knee-jerk emotional response that triggered all her trauma historically. Yeah. Um, I wrote along after I wrote that post. I I don't know if you saw on Facebook there was a there was an, a person wrote a long response. It was a family member, um, and so I responded back. And oh, I went point, by the point, point. point by point. That's because, right. Yes, I did. And say I did engage with them because they're my family, and I wanted to be able. To, I wanted to give them the respect and and thoughtfulness. And it was a lot of. Um, um, what are common talking points? And I wanted to, as you said, to kind of pause. Let's think about what you're actually saying because I don't, I know you and I know that you're not, and I know, you know, most people are humane and don't actually, if they think through what they're saying, they don't actually mean it. So some of the points were essentially like, well, what are we going to do? Like Hamas did this and they hide themselves in hospitals. And it's like, okay, sure, but you still, you can't commit genocide you can't kill. You can't kill children, and you can't kill civilians. You just like it doesn't like. Because are you saying sometimes it's okay? So it's like if some you know if um, there's a guy, uh, a bank robber steals your child, and the and they hold your child in front of it. Can you shoot your child to kill the bank robber? No, of course you can't. Sure, and so it's sure. And I'm so, so basically saying when you're saying, oh yeah, but we have to because there's no other choice. It's like, well, wait a second. Are there other choices? And I think, and I was mentioning there are possible other choices, rather than just going in and killing civilians, maybe there's other choices, maybe involving the UN peacekeeping, maybe in pausing for some weeks to make some, to try and figure something else. There's a number of things. I mean, I, I'm not, I wasn't posing actual solutions, but just uh, positing that there were other possibilities. And certainly, like, you can draw a clear line is killing thousands of civilians isn't the way to do it, no matter what. And you and whereas the talking points were to justify these terrible things, which I know that they didn't really think through what that actually means, hmm. um, because then it very quickly goes into well, Palestinian lives are sort of complicit, and there's a, you know they voted for Hamas, and and it becomes like okay, all of a sudden they're back to being human animals and doing all the dehumanizing things that I know those people abhor and so somehow maybe they got pulled in and they drank the Kool-Aid and they and they're believing like their their thinking got foggy because of their own trauma and that's exactly what I think the job of writing and the job of writing these public things is to say wait a second pause let's unpack that and think about what that actually means um, beyond the the fear and there really is a sense of fear from Jews about um, about anti-semitism and this and like it's crystal knocked and it's the beginning of the holocaust again um, and let's think about what we might want to do uh, or how we might want to think about this in another way. 
Um, I, I don't want to use a word like brave. I, I think that I think that doesn't quite capture what you've done, but I do want to say importance. I think what you've done is really important because we talked a little bit earlier about risk. You just talked about a directly responding point by point to a family member to say, let's look back at this. Let's, let's have a thoughtful back and forth about this. You didn't do it over dinner. I guess you didn't have the opportunity in person as it turns out with the dinner invitation, but you did it very publicly. Yes. And, and did you ever have second thoughts about doing that before? I had trepidation. Okay. But I felt if I wasn't going to be a hypocrite, here I am writing about persecution and writing about, and I'm saying I'm a writer and it's important to speak truth to power and it's important. I'm making connections between the Holocaust and um, Indigenous genocide and I'm speaking about these things. I, I would feel that I would be a hypocrite if I didn't respond. And also, I, I, I've often thought when I'm looking back at history, the history of, say, the Holocaust, um, well, what would I do? Would I, would I have been one of those brave resist, resistant people if I had not been Jewish? Oh, it's, such a, it's such a classic like, and heartrending uh, thought exercise to do that. Right. Yeah. Right? And, uh, yeah. Yeah. And like, and if I had, would I, um, I have relatives who were hit, who are hidden by, um, by non-Jews. Like, would I have done that? It's like, well, okay, maybe me myself, but I've got a family. Would I have put my family at risk? And, yeah. Like, I don't know. I don't, I don't believe that. Um, I've always thought that I wouldn't, I wouldn't be particularly brave. I would just be like, like most people just in fear and just trying to protect my family. Well, and that just, that really does highlight that disparity in the risk factor too, right? Because we can do thought exercises. Yeah. They're safe compared to the historical decisions and choices people have had to make in those situations. My own family in Holland, for example, choosing whether or not to make hidden rooms in their homes. Exactly. To protect people, whether it was an allied airman who fell or uh, Jews who were being persecuted and fleeing the, the Third Reich and all of the above. I, you know, I'm a Dutch person. Would I have done that? I have had those thought exercises as yes. well. Yeah. yeah. There's, I just read this an amazing story. Do you know... Um, um, what we talk about when we talk about Anne Frank by Nathan Englander. I know the title, but I haven't so read it. So there's a story, the, the title story, okay. that what, what the game is, is exactly that. When they talk about Anne Frank, the thing is, would you have hidden somebody if mm. you were... And so that's what the whole story is. It's, a, it's an amazing, amazing story. It's, I so recommend it. It's mostly not about that, but in the end, that's what exactly it's about. Well, I'll and put that in the show notes, actually, it, so people can look that up Yeah, as well. it's really, 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 really striking. Um and and it's surprising because it's exactly about um, breaking beyond stereotypes um, of what who you think might and what are the so to me to your point you're exactly right the risk is so I mean I was thinking like so what some of my family or Jewish community is going to be upset with me or I'm not going to get gigs because I do a lot of Jewish related gigs I do lots of I end up reading at synagogues and at Jewish festivals um, but in fact other than I did get some. Um, I did get some blowback from from people, absolutely, and that was you know that was difficult. And I know I talked to another Jewish writer, a more prominent Jewish writer than me, who said he got hate mail. Hmm. Um, but actually, mostly people were were grateful to me. Um, I was really um, just that I, as a Jewish writer, that I I would speak this this way. Both Jewish people have been, and especially non Jewish people, to to try and um, to try to try and speak what it, um, not just to follow the party line, I guess. Um, and not just to blindly just uh, support of Israel. And I think mostly, I think to actually, un for me, what's the important thing is not just to say to support Palestine, but to actually try and 
get beyond simple binaries and actually understand how people are feeling. Like I, as much as I decry genocide and I absolutely um, I'm horrified by what Netanyahu is doing. I'm aware that Hamas isn't Palest isn't the Palestinians, mm. and that the Israeli government isn't Israelis, and Israelis aren't Jews. There's all various kinds of overlapping of all of those things. But by saying that you're not saying, for example, being able to separate the state of Israel from Jewishness, and yes. saying you know what the state of Israel does. By criticizing that, it doesn't make it anti-Semitic. Just like by saying what Hamas is doing is not is that it's wrong, is not anti-Islamic, right? Where you can make that separation. No, absolutely. Or, or I mean, Hamas doesn't represent Palestinians, right, uh, right. for that matter. And I also would say that what Israel has done, it doesn't even represent all Zionists. Like to be even more clear, sure. You know, um, I mean, I'm not a Zionist. Um, and that's a whole other conversation. Sure. But but okay, if you're a Zionist, but there's a way to be a Zionist and be moral and be fair mm. and be, I think, accord in accord with the principles of um, well, morality and ethics. <laughs> basically, yeah. um, there the, you know there there has to be a way for that to to to, to just the way it's possible to be a, a, um, a U.S. citizen and be ethical and moral, mm. um, even though there are some aspects in the very definition of the country, of the nation state that are problematic, perhaps. Sure. There's still ways within that, given that it exists. And mostly, though, um, or so I have a bottom line, which is like no genocide, period. Like that's, sure. that's, that's simple. And it's like, so I would work from that and then figure out what are the consequences of that rather than the other way around, mm. number one. And number two, one of the most important things of a, of a society is to be able to have reasonable discourse, like not hate speech, but then you, but but often what what get categorized as hate speech, shuts down the dialogue as opposed to like speech that is difficult and complicated and maybe hateful, but not hate speech. And so I think it's but it's important that we are able to discuss these things and do the hard work of really, and especially understanding people's positionality because I also come from a position that people are good. They may be traumatized, they may be broken, they may be responding badly due to a difficult situation and, and past history. But fundamentally, people people don't come from a place of quote-unquote evil. Mm. Um, there's something going on. And so it's it, to me, it's the um, citizen's role and the writer's role to um, and the a public speaker's role to try and disentangle that and get us back to speaking and understanding our common humanity and our basic values, despite all the distortions of power and history and trauma and all of that stuff. Mm. Because I really believe, and I know that that is, that is the case for, you know, for almost everybody. Some people maybe have, are broken beyond recognition, but ultimately that, I mean, that I work from that, like it's worth speaking and it's worth unpacking people's feelings and trying to communicate. And people can actually still sit in the same room and have a conversation that is, I use the word loving and kind. Yeah. Even when talking about difficult things, which is something that gets lost when we expose ourselves exclusively to what the media frenzy that we encounter online or in, you know, which TV. wants to, which wants makes things polarized and makes things like a, yeah. a cage match, I suppose. And also, even, you know, loving, absolutely. But if, even if not that, then just witnessing. I know how you're feeling. Mm. I hear where you're coming from. Like, I, in, not just in terms of ideologically or politically, but just, 
you as a you as a person honoring you as a person as well right like i wit yes i witness where you're from and you witness where i'm and so therefore you actually have a place to start to start um sort of it's like a very impl- a deep implicit respect for their personhood position. yeah the personhood the position their, their and the personhood yeah. yeah 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 for sure now we're all saturated by the media frenzy and talk 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 i think sometimes is almost too much talk, but I'd like to give you the opportunity. Is there anything that hasn't been talked about that you think might be talked about or might be talked about better or from whatever perspective that you have a gap in the conversation? One thing, and I think it's difficult to speak about because again, it's very triggering for Jewish people is, is Israel um, in terms of I'm not talking about the elimination, but Israel was founded as um, as a nation state and um, to privilege one group of people, Jewish people. And the idea was that um, any Jew could move to Israel because Europe weren't interested in the Jews. They wanted to solve the Jewish question. They just wanted to, they they have historically persecuted Jews. Jews were always um, othered and given less um, less rights. Or, or very con- contingent rights that were easily taken away at various points, um, no matter how um, assimilated they were. Like Germany is a really great example. Um, and so after the, after the Second World War, after the Holocaust, Europe, I mean, particularly Britain, because Brit- Britain had Palestine, but, but the UN was like, all, I think all of Europe was saying like, tell you what, let's put the Jews in Israel, then we don't have to deal with them. Like, we don't actually have to deal with figuring out how to deal with anti-Semitism within our countries. We don't have to deal with um, what the consequences of, I think, our failure during the Holocaust. Um, they may have um, won the war, but it was it was clear, none is too many. They're not accepting, They weren't. people weren't accepting Jews. People weren't in the war to protect Jews. They were in the war for to protect territory, to fight, mm-hmm. to fight mm-hmm. an aggressor. Yeah. It's very convenient tell you what, let's take all these Jews and we'll stick them in Israel and then like in this area and then we can wipe our hands with them. And then, so I feel like Jews were like the patsy. They were like put into this completely untenable situation, put into, put into Palestine, as well as the pa- Palestinians who were there. Who were there. Um, so the, it was completely unworkable. And even the idea of a state that I understand that it was able to, um, many people were able to migrate from other places where they're being persecuted Jews and find a place in Israel. And that was an important function, but it was a failure of all those other places that, sure. that, uh, that didn't, weren't able to protect their citizens. The yeah. Jews you there. don't hear that a lot, actually. And that's and an interesting perspective. So, so that, so, I mean, I get that. And of course I understand that, but the problem is then it makes a state that's two levels, which is that, yes, if we're always, if we're going to always be a place where Jews can go safely, well then, they're more equal than others. Ah, and yes. then that's that's the problem in a modern yeah. state. I know that was how states used to be in the 19th century and sort of like Europe coming out of colonialism were happy to create another one. And they did. They made a mess in Africa too, which is why there's such unspeakable horrors are happening sure, in Africa sure. because they just sort of drew these borders and it's like, okay, you deal with it now. Mm. We're like we're wiping our hand, we're washing our hands of this. And so there are these like various kind of groups that are fighting because they gave territory to one people or the other it's exactly what's happening in israel so what's a difficult thing to do is to rethink israel how to protect jewish people from persecution but how to create a state that is a modern state that is really democratically equal um and how i i mean i don't really i have no idea 
how to how to go about that, and even the structure of the Israeli um, political system. There's all these millions of little fractured parties that sure, but, come together. But these... recognizing the personhood and the peoplehood of the people who were there in 1948, well, when they drew those lines and said anybody can go who's Jewish, there are people there already. Right, and there, and there, yeah, and they also, should be part of the conversation. And, and I mean, included. I, I also recognize, as I'm sent so many things from so many family members and other Jews. Yes, in 1948, there were many Jews expelled from many places all around the world, but all around the Middle East, certainly. And so, I, like, looking for a way to make Israel um, a, a more inclusive or a more more equitable place for every person does not mean not recognizing the the need to protect Jews and the mm. need to yeah. Israel's ideas can exist. Yeah, and so yeah. I, I mean, I don't yeah. even know. Together. But how how do we how do what what do we do about anti-Semitism in other countries? I mean, my feeling is, and it's an old idea from uh, back in the 1905. At the, the I think the Bundists were saying they talk about hereness, which is like we need to solve the problem of anti-Semitism and of worker discrimination and everything else in the place we're in, not like farm people off to another place. Yeah. So, I mean, that's my personal feeling that it's like, okay, I don't want to have like the Jews saying, okay, things are, anti-Semitism is rising in Canada. Let's, well, let's move to Israel. No, I want to fix it in in Canada, sure. in Russia, in in wherever. Israel, you know, Palestine. In Israel, too, Palestine. As well. Yeah, especially. Like, Saudi Arabia, yeah. like all of this place, you know, like whatever, all of these places which are like Saudi Arabia, which is terribly... Um, inequitable and unfair, I have no idea how we'd fix it, but I feel that that's where they should, you know, we should solve the problems and not have people just leave. Similarly, like all the kinds of horrific um, deaths due to migrations across the, across the Mediterranean as a result of what's happening in Africa, we need to fix the problem from historically rather than just having a place where you, where you migrate to. I mean, it's really the same yeah. problem. So I guess that's what I, I, I guess so to, to find a way to rethink Israel and which might include, I mean, other places in the region like pa- Palestine, like that ultimately the, the, that will be the, the solution. There's no way to stop this. Even if they destroy every single Hamas person, even if they could sort of just like blink them away and they were gone, there's still going to be many traumatized um, Palestinians who have lived in horrific conditions. And of course, it's going to breed radicalism. Yeah. I think about growing up in Northern Ireland during the Troubles, right. where um, the problem went away, essentially, once um, Ireland joined the uh, and Britain joined the EU, once economic prosperity and, and possibility arrived for the um, Catholics in, the Nor- in Northern Ireland, then people, people, then the the killing stopped, and and then and the desperate need to move Northern Ireland uh, to become part of the South uh, stopped. I mean, it's not that people still don't want it, but they, they people were blowing blowing up bombs and and that kind of stuff because what people really want is peace and security and self determination and you know like the ability to be themselves and have a voice in the civic structure which needs to, which happened there you know and um you know more or less if you really wanted to you could get into the nitty gritty of that but, right and and all of the little imperfections that would actually and has killed the conversation because people say well what about this what about that what about that of course of course but that doesn't mean we shouldn't try for an equitable solution that recognizes the inherent personhood of the people we're talking right. about right i mean i think like i said you start from genocide as a as a as the the a line you don't cross and then you build the solution from there similarly you start from 
what you need, like what are, what, what are not non-negotiable, and then you try and find solutions based, you, you know, you back from a back formation from there rather than the other way around where you get mired in details, which aren't, which end up having people saying things they don't even, they don't ethically really, they can't ethically support. Hmm. This has been really great. Thank you so much for being here and for making that post and getting me thinking and hopefully our listeners thinking as oh, well. Thank Gary, thanks. Thanks for the opportunity. It was really great to talk about it. Thank you so much to Gary Barwin for sharing his ideas with us and hanging out with us here at Rejected Central. And thank you for listening. As a reminder, we're always looking for your stories. Your stuff is really the reason that we do what we do. Do reach out with those ideas and stories through email, social media, and our website at rejectedcentral.com. And we look forward to hearing from you. We'll see you next time, Rejects.